Well, we're continuing our study of Paul's second uh, letter to the Corinthians, second inspired letter. And uh, after his introduction, he immediately said some things about his own circumstances, some recent trials he'd had in Asia, <clears throat> perhaps because uh, he had planned to come and visit the, the church in Corinth on his way to northern Greece or Macedonia, and then he was going to, after having visited Macedonia, going to go back down to Corinth a second time, but uh, for uh, various reasons his plans had changed. That's part of the context of our text this morning. Uh, again, he is uh, encouraged because he had written what he calls a severe letter to them after um, uh, some false teachers had encouraged a mutiny against Paul and uh, Titus had taken it and between the letter and Titus ministry there had been some encouraging repentance and improvement but everything's not completely sorted out yet. He's also planning when he does come, he's, he's preparing for his third visit, uh, which he thought might have already happened but did not yet, uh, to also take a collection from them that the other Gentile churches were gathering uh, for um, the Jewish believers. And, and so uh, these are all part of the context of his writing in what is often acknowledged to be the most personal uh, of Paul's um, uh, epistles. Um, so given that little bit of background, before I read the text, I'd like to ask the young folks to give me your attention here. And by that, I mean children and teenagers and uh, any other young folks like Betsy Stewart and uh, Vince Warwick, but especially uh, the younger ones. And I want to ask you a question, young folks. Do you ever make promises? I'm pretty sure you do to your parents your siblings, your friends, teachers, other people. Uh, let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a promise to someone and you knew when you made it, you were not gonna keep it? Maybe not, but it may be that at some point, maybe even recently, you can remember doing that. You said that you would do something when you knew you weren't gonna do it. And I think you know that that's a lie. It's wrong to do that, to make a promise when you know you're not going to keep it. Have you ever made a promise without thinking about it very much? Somebody asked you to do something, you said, sure, I'll do that, and you just forgot about it. That's not lying. It's not that you knew when you said it you would not do it, but it's, it's not good to make a promise and then to forget about it, but sometimes we do that without thinking very much. Have you ever made a promise with every intention of doing what you said and then something happened and you just couldn't do it? Uh, the weather, uh, car trouble, you got sick, somebody else got sick. There are all kinds of things that can happen and we intend to do things and we just aren't able to do them or sometimes other things come up and you realize, well, I probably shouldn't do it, even though I intended to do it at the time, circumstances change. What would you think about that situation where you made a promise intending to do it and something happened and you didn't do it or you, you decided you needed to change? If somebody called you a liar for that, what would you think? You didn't lie. You said it in good faith. Well, that seems to be the situation here with Paul and the Corinthians. He had intended fully at one point to come and visit them, then go to Macedonia or northern Greece, 
and then come back and visit him a second time. And for various reasons, maybe the trials he mentions in verse 8, well, he, he doesn't go into lots of detail, but he changed his mind. And they were accusing him, some were accusing him of at the very least being fickle and just making promises lightly without thinking about it. Others said maybe he's a liar. And so Paul is responding to that. He uh, is, that's what he's dealing with here. So with that background, I think he says some things can help us in being uh, wise in the way we speak and the way we make promises and so on. Let me encourage you, young folks, as you listen to the text, as I read the text and the sermon, see if there are not some things that can be helpful to us in terms of our own uh, use of our God-given uh, gift of speech. So with that background, <clears throat> let me ask you to stand and we'll pray one more time briefly, and I'll read our text beginning in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 15. Again, our Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth, that every word of God proves true. For what our Lord Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, thy word is truth. We thank you that he called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. We thank you that the truth, when we believe and apply it, sets us free in Christ. And so we pray, spirit of truth, that you'd bless our reading and reflection upon this portion of your truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Again, brothers and sisters, hear God's word beginning in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 15. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Please be seated. You can't believe a word he says. Have you ever heard that said about someone? Have you ever said it about someone? Has it ever been said about you? I hope not. But apparently it was being said by some folks about Paul. Because he had changed his travel plans about visiting Corinth. Some in the church were apparently asserting that Paul was unreliable uh, or at least fickle, if not downright dishonest at times. 
Worse yet, they may have been suggesting that he was unreliable as a teacher. And while I think Paul was probably humble enough to endure the personal insult, he surely wasn't willing to have his uh, gospel and his apostolic ministry undermined. And so he launches here into a personal defense, uh, a defense of his personal integrity and veracity as a teacher. And as he does so, I think he's got some very helpful things that apply to us. Four points this morning, and the first one is this, God is faithful. Very simple. Enjoy it. The others are not quite that, that short and simple. God is faithful. Now, Paul states this great truth directly there in verse 18. After he set the context, referring to his change of plans about his visit, he says in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And this is probably uh, Paul speaking in the sense of a kind of an oath. God himself did that back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 14. God says, as truly as I live and as all the earth should be filled with the glory of God, he states some facts about himself and what he's going to do. And then he goes on to make some statements. It's kind of like uh, God is my witness. So Paul here uh, asserts the faithfulness of God, but his point is, in a sense, God is the witness to what I'm going to say here. Now, this is not the first time Paul had spoken to the Corinthians about the faithfulness of God. He did it twice in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom we were called in the fellowship of his Son. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptations overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and will not let us be tempted beyond our strength, but with a temptation will provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure. But he's twice asserted already in his first letter the faithfulness of God, and he repeats it here. Now, what does it mean to be faithful? The word that probably for us relates more clearly to that is trustworthy. Worthy of trust. When somebody says something, you can believe it. When they tell you facts, you can believe that what they say is accurate and true. When they make promises, you can count on the fact they'll do what they promise. And of course, in Numbers 23, 19, uh, the Lord or Moses said, the Lord through Moses, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? That's a rhetorical question. And the obvious, the assumed answer is no. If he said it, he'll do it. If he's promised, he'll fulfill it. Now it says God is not man that he should lie. People uh, lie sometimes. They make promises intentionally planning not to keep them uh, for various reasons. Sometimes it's out of fear. They say, if I don't make this promise, I'm going to be in trouble. So they make it with no intention to do it. Sometimes it's to manipulate people. Sometimes it's just pride. There are some people who just get a kick out of tricking other people. But for various reasons, men lie. And they have to repent. They don't have all knowledge. They don't have all power. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so they may uh, make promises that they realize later that wasn't a wise thing or I, I just can't make it happen. But none of that's true about God. And so he is utterly 
trustworthy. Again, that's why I use Psalm 100 at verse 5. The steadfast love of the Lord lasts forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It's enduring and eternal. And it's connected, among other things, with his covenant love. Isaiah 65 says, describes him twice as the God of truth. Titus 1, 2, he's called the God who cannot lie. You know, there are some things that are impossible for God to do, and that's one of them. He cannot lie. In fact, Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. Paul's point is that God himself is not duplicitous. He's not double-tongued, saying one thing when he means another. Yes, when he means no. And it's interesting, you know, we think of Hebrews 11 and rightly as the hall of fame of of believers of faith, examples of, of people of great faith. That's true. But when you think of it, Hebrews 11 is also a monument to the faithfulness of God. That he kept his promises to all those believers. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, the rest. And so, beloved, faithfulness is a wonderful and an important attribute or perfection of God. It's one of many beautiful aspects of his glory and worthy of our praise. As a result, his faithfulness in history and in our own lives can and should be a powerful and a wonderful fuel and theme for our worship. Corporately, and the Psalms do that, other parts of the Bible, they rehearse God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, his covenant people, Israel, and so on. And in our own lives, that's something that we can and should do frequently by way of encouragement, but for worship to reflect the faithfulness of God in our lives to us. It's also a vital foundation for our faith. Do you ever struggle with faith? Do you sometimes find it hard to trust the Lord? Well, there are lots of things that we can do. The scripture is the most important thing, but one thing that can help us when we are struggling is to reflect and review the faithfulness of God in scripture, but in our own lives as well. And that can be a comfort and an encouragement to us. Romans 4, 25, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God when he had promised that that he and Sarah are going to have a son at at 90 and 100 years. But he grew strong as his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. And so praise and thanksgiving can be for, for God's faithfulness can be a great encouragement to our own faith. Now, he doesn't always answer our prayers or fulfill his promises in the time and the way that we imagine or might want him to. But in the end, his way, his timing is always best. So part of Paul's defense of himself here is he makes an emphatic and unquestionable statement about God himself, that God is faithful. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to give two profound instances and examples of God's faithfulness. That brings us to our next point. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the yes and the amen to all God's promises. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. Again, Paul, beginning in verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, again, it's interesting, uh, no surprise, but it's just interesting to note that Paul equates Jesus Christ with the Son of God. He is of the same nature as this faithful God that he's mentioned earlier. Not only that, he assumes that this faithful God has made many promises. He doesn't explain. He just references those promises in verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes. Remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4. He refers uh, to the precious and God's precious and magnificent promises. And Paul just makes that assumption here that God has made many promises. And then he emphatically says those promises are focused on and fulfilled in and by Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in him. The promise of the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The promise to Abraham that his seed would be not just a mighty nation, but through his seed, singular, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal and universal throne, ruling over an eternal universal kingdom. The promise of Emmanuel, the virgin-born child whose name means God with us. The promise of a ruler who would be born in tiny, uh, little, insignificant Bethlehem. The promise of a suffering servant who would bear the sins of his people, even though he himself was sinless. The promise of the glorious Son of Man who's going to come on the clouds of heaven to bring judgment. The judgment we read about at the end of uh, Psalm 110 and rule over an eternal kingdom. And many, many more. All fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why Matthew 1, 1 is such a wonderful verse. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Messiah Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the one in whom all these promises to David and Abraham find their fulfillment. And consequently, Paul says, by him is our amen. Again, verse 20, um, in him, amen to the glory of God, through us. Now that can be translated various ways. Some render it, we make our amen through him. 1 Corinthians 14 implies that it was common in the first century in the worship for people to say amen. Remember they said, if you're speaking in tongues and people come in and can't understand, how can they add their amen to what you say, what you pray? Justin Martyr, the Church father described, he says, that, that in, in the church in the first century, uh, the people would join a corporate amen. It said it would roll like a thunderclap across uh, the, the place where they gathered for worship. So it, maybe that's what he's saying, that the, the common reference of the people to, to say amen to uh, the things that were said about Christ and his promises. 
or perhaps uh, he's referring to their agreement with um, the preaching of he. He mentioned that he and Silvanus and Timothy preached Christ to them, and the Corinthians obviously believe. In any event, the point is that Christ is that amen. And marvel, brothers and sisters, again, we tend to get um, spoiled, we get comfortable. There are things we just take so much for granted. The fact that Almighty God has made promises to you and me, to frail, sinful lumps of dust is a remarkable thing. He's a personal God, a God who speaks, and among the things he says are promises, precious and magnificent promises. That's a remarkable thing that's easy for us just to take for granted. We hear it, we talk about it a lot. And think what a blessing it is to have so many of them recorded in Holy Scripture. Charles Spurgeon wrote a number of wonderful devotional books one is called Faith's Checkbook. Now, you young people, do you know, how many of you young people even know what a checkbook is? Okay, a few of you. If you go down to the Museum of American History, they probably got one somewhere, you know, along with VHS tapes and, and things like that. But uh, a checkbook was a book where people used to uh, write a note that says, um, give this much money to this person out of my account. It was a promise. If you show this, then you'll be given this money. And Spurgeon called, uh, it, called it Faith's Checkbook, and the whole book is just different promises of God that Spurgeon takes and expounds. But the point again, God has made wonderful promises. And this underscores what Paul says here, the centrality of Jesus Christ to all of Scripture. Not just Psalm 110. You know there are lots of other um, messianic psalms and lots of other passages in the law and the prophets that all point to Jesus. The centrality of Jesus Christ to our doctrine, to what we believe and what we teach, to our daily life and practice. Jesus Christ ought to be central to that. Just think of what Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, I said, Paul, uh, there's disagreement about who the human writer is. Certainly he was guided by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews 4, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's a doctrinal commitment. But then he goes on just a verse later to say, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are. The fact that Jesus Christ is, is our high priest, that he's lived in this world, experienced the things we experience, and is sympathetic to us should encourage us in our prayer life. Very practical. And this is the reason, brothers and sisters, why Jesus Christ is absolutely central to the gospel. And he's the, the sine qua non, without which nothing of salvation. There is salvation in no one else, said Paul. Now that sounds hopelessly exclusive and offensive to modern day people. But it's the truth of God. And if somebody comes up with a cure for 
a certain cancer because they, they know it addresses the problem. They research, they know how the cancer works. They design a, a, a drug or a treatment that can undo that and heal it. And that's the only remedy. And you can go and you can buy all kinds of over-the-counter drugs. You can get other prescription drugs. They're not going to help. This is the one that addresses the problem, and that's the case with our Lord Jesus. Our problem is sin, our own sin, our spiritual weakness and deadness that we can't do anything to save ourselves. But in Christ, God has done everything, and we simply receive him with the empty hands of faith. And so again... This is one great evidence that Paul presents of God's faithfulness in his fulfilling of his promises in and through Christ, the Son of God, the one who Paul had preached to the Corinthians. But as wonderful as that is, he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and that brings us to our third point this morning. The faithful God establishes his children by the ministry of his Spirit. The faithful God establishes his children by the ministry of his spirit. Here, verses 21 and 22. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit and our hearts as a guarantee. Now, Paul actually makes a pun here in the Greek. Um... When he says, the one who establishes us, the Greek word is literally amens. The one who amens us with you in Christ is God. The word amen in Greek means, uh, and it's a Hebrew word originally, means firm, steadfast, sure. And it can be both an affirmation. When you affirm something that somebody says, you want to agree and say, amen, that's right. But it can also be a kind of a prayer. Amen. Lord, you hear a prayer, you say, Amen. So be it. Lord, make it so. But it means firm, steadfast, sure, established, which Paul says here, certain, reliable, and so on. God establishes people. He makes them secure. He preserves them. The foundation upon which he establishes them is Christ. He's the rock. The cornerstone, the foundation of our salvation, the means by which he does it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who enables people to really understand the gospel, to really feel something of, of, of the truth of it, their own need, and Christ's sufficiency, and then to, to turn the repentance and faith to him. It's interesting, one of the Old Testament promises that I, you know, I, I almost, I had, I think I had one of those passages initially and decided to go with Psalm 110, but in Isaiah 42 and Joel 2, the Old Testament looks forward to the new covenant with a fuller, richer ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not that the Holy Spirit didn't minister under the Old Covenant. He did. But clearly, Isaiah 42 and, and, and Joel 2, I'm sorry, Isaiah 43 and Joel to anticipate a much fuller outpouring of the Spirit, young and old, male and female, all the nations. And so Acts 2, you know, when on the day of uh, Pentecost, when, when the, the tongues uh, and the flames of fire attract a crowd of people from all over and Peter preaches, he quotes Joel 2 and says, this is being fulfilled here in the outpouring of the Spirit, a new, fuller 
ministry of the Spirit under the new covenant. And so Paul says, we've been anointed. Anointing was a kind of a setting apart. People were prophets, priests, and kings were put into their office by being anointed. It pointed to, at least figuratively, uh, 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 an empowerment by the Spirit. Um, to be sealed is to, uh, a seal is a sign of validity uh, or a sign of ownership. And the Spirit is a sign in us that we belong to God and that we're legitimate. And then he says he's given them to us as a guarantee. The word here means a down payment, uh, a bit of money put down as a guarantee that you'll pay off the rest of the loan. That's how you buy a house and do other things. A guarantee. There's an important question. How do I know that I will be kept in Christ and finally saved by him? That, that question can be answered several ways. But one is along with his promise, the Holy Spirit in my heart and life is God's guarantee. An engagement ring, and it's interesting, in modern Greek, this word is the word for engagement ring, is a promise. We're committed to be married. Sometimes when couples get engaged, they set a wedding date, not always, uh, but they say if we haven't set this wedding date, we're going to set a date and we'll get married. A wedding ring is a promise to keep the vows that we made to God and to one another when we were married. And it's interesting, after you, when you get married, you typically have some kind of a license that you have to get approved, <clears throat> and it goes to uh, the county clerk or the appropriate person, and they notarize it or put a seal on it that says it's official. And Paul uses all these ideas to say the Spirit's presence in our lives is all of that for us. And notice, brothers and sisters, isn't it interesting, uh, here as in so many other places, Paul's Trinitarian faith. He's not, he's not writing a theological discourse here. He's writing very practical things, but he just naturally refers to the various persons of the Trinity. Not always, but typically in the New Testament letters, God refers to the Father. He mentions God and then the Son and the Spirit, all very naturally. Notice, too, how perfectly they cooperate in our salvation. Isn't it wonderful? It'd be wonderful if it's just one, if it's just the, the, the Father. And of course, he's the ultimate source and origin, his decree that we should be created and commissioned to be lost and then to be saved. But the, the Son and the Spirit, all three of these infinitely glorious, almighty uh, persons cooperating together in the salvation of every single one of their beloved children. And notice the varied and wonderful ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why I read what we read from Romans, just 16 verses. Go back this afternoon, take a few minutes or more than a few minutes and read all of Romans 8 and just notice the names of the Spirit, the way he's described and the various ministries that he has. Now, Paul here just speaks briefly. Uh, he speaks of um, our having been anointed, 
uh, having been sealed and having the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But think of so many other things, the ministry of regeneration, born again by the spirit. The fruit he produces is grace to help us in sanctification. Empowerment for witness. You receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you to be my witnesses. Now that may well have been a special promise to the apostles, but there is a sense in which it's appropriate for all of God's children. So many different ways the Spirit ministers and blesses. And do you remember uh, verse 9 in Romans 8? You probably don't because we read the chapter quickly. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's Romans 8 9. So, if I ask you this morning, what do you know personally of the Spirit's presence and power in your life? What would you say? If you'd have to say honestly, you know, little or nothing then that's a cause for concern. I'd say, let's talk about it. Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. On the other hand, if you can say, by the grace of God, I really, I think I do know and see the presence of the Spirit um, drawing me to the Lord, moving me to pray. The Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, and he moves me to pray. He helps me. He gives me a delight in the word. I see him helping me. I'm not perfect, far from it, but I see I'm making progress in dealing with my besetting sins. Again, if you can say, yeah, I do see the presence of the Spirit in my life. Hallelujah. That's reason for praise, thanksgiving, and gratitude. Let me encourage you to praise the Lord and continue to pray for more and more of his presence. So Paul's argument to the Corinthians is that there is a very practical connection between these three aspects of God's faithfulness and Paul himself in terms of his own behavior in general and toward the Corinthians as well. And that's equally applicable to you and me. That's our final point this morning. Children and servants of the God of truth, the faithful God, comma, Believers in God's amen, comma, and those sealed by his spirit must not be false or fickle in their words. I know that's a long one. So for Brad and anybody else that might be helpful, let me say it again slowly. Children and servants of the God of truth, or the faithful God, believers in God's amen, and those sealed by his spirit must not be false or fickle in their words. Now, again, I alluded to this earlier when I was talking to the young folks. There may be times when our own nature and the nature of life makes it impossible or unadvisable for us to keep our word and our promises. We are not omniscient. We don't know everything. We're not omnipotent. We can't rule over everything. And so we can and do, all of us, again, at this point, we're thinking about promises particularly, make promises in good faith, and then things happen, circumstances change, or we learn things, 
that either make it impossible for us to keep the promise or unadvisable to do so. And that's part of the nature of our world. We live in a world where all kinds of things can happen. Like I said, car trouble, weather, illness, a host of things can happen. And they may make it unadvisable. It's interesting in Proverbs 6, Solomon says, My son, if you put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, do this, my son, and save yourself. If you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so he says here, if you've made a foolish commitment, in this case some kind of financial business commitment, there's a place to go and see if you can get out of it. So there are times when it's it's, um, not advisable to keep promises we may have made. Nonetheless, again, as God's covenant people, his character has implications for us. If we are his people, God said in in Exodus, and Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 1, you must be holy for I am holy. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. He's a God of love, and we're to reflect that. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 makes an argument about worship. The Corinthians' worship was chaotic. And he says, God is a God not of confusion, but of peace and order. So do all things decently and in order, because the God you worship is a God of order. And chaos, like you have in your service, is not appropriate. And of course, God is also truthful. The ninth commandment, again, prohibits Lying, dishonesty, false witness specifically, but the broader thing is lying. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Now, again, I made the point earlier, we can say things uh, that we intend or things that we just think lightly. We don't really think about it much. We say something. That's not the same thing as a lie where you actually intentionally do it. But he says here, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Colossians 3, don't lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now I think, I think scripture makes an exception to that in time of war. And you may disagree. We can talk about it later if you want to. Uh, the Lord commends the, the midwives in Exodus 3 who lied to Pharaoh about the uh, Israelite babies being born. He commends and rewards them for that. And there are other examples, David with the Philistines and so on. Where in times of war, deception, I think, is legitimate. But we've got to be careful. Jesus said, your father, the devil, when he lies, speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 21.8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. So it's a serious thing. Now again, there is such a thing as discretion. That's where you don't say everything. There are times when that can be a lie, but there are other times when it's quite appropriate. Our Savior often didn't say everything at one time to his own disciples or to his enemies. 
Scripture talks about, uh, you see a man who's hasty in his words, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. So there's a place to be wise and judicious in what we say and what we share that can in some context be lying, but often it's not. It's just part of wisdom. So we're not talking about those things, but about lying. And we shouldn't be fickle. Our words are important, so we should not speak without thinking. And just say, oh, sure, I'll do that without really thinking about it and maybe forget and never, never do it. We're going to sing Psalm 15 here in just a few minutes. And that psalm talks about who is it can sojourn in the Lord's tent and dwell in his holy hill, who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Again, we've talked about integrity. What you see is what you get. Being the same on the inside as we are on the outside, speaking truth in the heart. And then it goes on to talk about outwardly. He doesn't slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, and so on. It also says he swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. Remember, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The, the Pharisees had erected a, an elaborate system of oath-taking so that you could take certain kinds of oaths which made it sound like you were really serious, but if you weren't. And Jesus says, you know, don't, don't do that. Let your yes be yes or your no, no. J.I. Packer says, truth in relationships, especially between Christians, is divinely commanded. And truth-telling is specified as integral to authentic godliness. He quotes Psalm 15 there, or cites it. God forbids lying, deception, and malicious misrepresentation. Truth-telling, which shows proper respect for the facts for our neighbor and for God, thus becomes a fundamental element in true religion and true love of one's neighbor. Now, brothers and sisters, sadly, we increasingly live in a culture that sees nothing at all wrong in lying without compulsion. I think it's an indication, one of many indications, of the decline of the influence of Christianity and, and the gospel, uh, the truth of God's word on our culture in general. Psalm 12, 8, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. And sadly, I say it with no pleasure, I say it with great grief, but that describes us as a culture. Vileness, not just tolerated, exalted. A whole month for pride. And it's all too easy. Again, Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let this world squeeze you into its mold because it, it can do that. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. We can get into that same mindset where we play fast and loose with our words. So I ask, how about you? How readily or frequently do you lie? by which I may mean saying things that you do not know to be true or actually believe to be untrue when you say them. How lightly do you make and break promises? Again, we've seen there's a place when you realize you've made a promise that's unwise to, to, to go and see if times if you can you know, get out of it, but that's, that's different. I'm just casually breaking it. And 
Psalm 15 says if, if you can't legitimately get out of it, then you keep it to your own hurt. How quickly do you repent when you find out that you may have even inadvertently said something that wasn't true? And that includes going to the person or persons involved and confessing it to the Lord, but confessing and repenting and doing what you can to make that right with them. And I do think if lying and promise breaking are commonplace habits and sins in our lives, that's a reason for a very significant concern. It's a bad sign, especially if you have any desire to be a Christian leader. I mean, Christian leaders, elders, and deacons are held to a very high standard above reproach. And, but even for every Christian, we're to be honest. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to adorn the gospel. And sometimes I think what happens is we wind up lying, making promises we don't intend to keep, uh, whatever, because we find ourselves in, in situations and we feel like we need to do that in defense. And sometimes the real problem is letting ourselves get in these situations. Do you let, put yourself in situations where you are tempted to do that? And that may be the root problem is just not letting yourself get in a situation like that. In any rate, brothers and sisters, if that's a struggle for you, and we struggle with various sins of various degrees, let me encourage you. By repenting and looking to Jesus in faith, you can be forgiven and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection life of Christ, transformed and changed. So, to review and summarize, God is faithful, Paul says. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the yes and amen to all of his promises. The faithful God establishes his children in Christ by the ministry of his spirit and children and servants of the God of truth, believers in God's amen, and those sealed by his spirit must not be false or fickle in their words. Fickle means quickly changeable, yes and no, that's what Paul says, yeah, no, whatever. Brothers and sisters, I quoted already Proverbs 35, Every word of God proves true. This is true in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and the truth and the life. It's the case in his written word. Everything that God says in the Bible is true. If we understand it correctly, now sometimes we don't, we may misunderstand, but if we understand what it says, it's true, whether it's about history, science, um, all kinds of different topics. And applies to moral and ethics as well. And remember that passage I read from Revelation um, 21. This is Revelation 22. I read earlier Revelation 21. Eight. Listen to Revelation 22:15. Outside, that's outside the New Jerusalem, excluded from uh, the Lord's presence and His people are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, all those kinds of wicked people, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Again, these passages indicate how the faithful God, the God of truth whose promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, who establishes us by the spirit of truth, hates lying. In our text this morning, Paul says in the strongest possible terms of the Corinthians, that was never part of his personal practice.
by the grace of God, may it never be part of ours as well. Amen. Please stand for prayer. <clears throat> Oh, our God, how we praise you that you are faithful. You are the God of truth, that every word of yours proves true, whether there are facts that you reveal or declare or promises that you make. You are absolutely worthy of our utmost trust. How we thank you that in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, all of your promises find their great and glorious amen. We thank you that so many of them have already been established in him and that those that yet remain will be established. The ones we sang about in Psalm 110 where his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, where he will come in judgment and destroy the wicked and so many others and where he'll make all things new and there'll be no more curse, no more death, no more tears. How we thank you for the precious gift of your spirit, the spirit of truth, who anoints and seals us and who is our guarantee and down payment, our uh, engagement ring that we belong to you. And how we thank you that when we sin, whether it's by lying or other ways, that we can come again and again and again to that overflowing fountain Fill, as in a sense, metaphorically, uh, with the blood of Jesus and be cleansed and be renewed. If there's anyone here who has yet to do that, would you help them? And for the rest, would you encourage us to continue to move forward, speaking the truth in love for the glory of Christ, for whom we pray. Amen.